In an ancient village, there was a group of ten foolish men. They lived together on the outskirts of town, driven mad by life or born eclectic or strange. No one could say for sure. What was sure is they were crazy. Not in a dangerous, psychotic way, but in the way of simpletons. Every village has an idiot or two. This village was blessed with ten. <laughs> they would come to town whenever there was a wedding, a festival, or a feast of some sort, because as simpletons, they love to eat and to dance and, of course, to drink. On one such occasion, they came to the village square one evening for a celebration, and through the course of the night were all overserved. Staggering, drunk, the fools attempted to wobble their way home in the dark, but they couldn't. They collapsed together in one great heap beneath an oak tree, and there they slept off their collective stupor until morning. As the sun began to rise and they began to awaken, the ten fools began wailing and crying out in anguish. A village elder, a wise man, came along, and he said, ask. What is wrong with all of you? And they answered, Well, help us. We all fell asleep last night, entangled, and now all our limbs have gone to sleep. And we can't tell whose leg, neck, hand, or arm belongs to who. <laughs> the village elder laughed and he said, Oh, this is easily fixed. And he reached down and picked up a stick. Then he reached into his pocket and got out his pocket knife and he began to work and whittle on that stick until he had a real sharp point. And then he walked over to the first leg that he came to and jabbed it. Oh, one of them yells. And so it went for the next few minutes, an arm here, a leg there, a kick to the head there, a thump there until everybody's circulation began to return and they all stood up and went home. Goofy story. But this story has been on my mind since Easter. In my mind's eye, I see, just as Anna described so well, the disciples of Jesus, ten crazy men, in a collapsed collective heap after Jesus' tragic death. They are in a stupor, induced not by alcohol necessarily, but by grief. They are stunned. They have lost their feelings. And they have locked themselves away in confusion, wailing in anguish. And then it happens. That sharp jab to the body. A kick in the head. Jesus himself, the risen Christ, finds them on Easter evening in their distress and shocks them back to their feet. The ten foolish followers of Jesus, simpletons brought back from the edge, pulled from the fate of lying down to die by the one who conquered death. Ten. And you're thinking, I thought there were twelve disciples. Well, there were. We have Judas, of course, the betrayer of Jesus, when he realized the outcome of his betrayal was not what he intended. And that's a talk for another time. He took his own life. So obviously he is unavailable in the telling of this story. And one of the disciples, for whatever reason, is missing on Easter evening when Jesus appears to the disciples, jarring them from their Good Friday and Holy Saturday comas. It's Thomas, that 11th disciple. He is still in disbelief a full week after the events of Easter. Why? 
he had not yet seen the proof for himself. And thus, he has been labeled ever since Doubting Thomas. Every year in the Revised Common Lectionary, this story of Thomas is the gospel reading for the Sunday after Easter. The Revised Common Lectionary is a book of guided scripture readings used by most mainline Protestant churches. The idea is that by following the lectionary, there is a common text read by the majority of the world's churches each Sunday. And if you have no regular reading plan for yourself of the scriptures, I certainly commend the lectionary to you. You don't have to buy it. The best online version is produced and maintained by Vanderbilt University in Nashville. There is year A, year B, and year C. We are in year C for the balance of 2019, at least until the first Sunday of Advent, and they rotate. But every year, regardless of the rotation, the story about Thomas, doubting Thomas, is read every year on the first Sunday after Easter. Doubting Thomas. Let Simon Peter... Stick his foot in his mouth. Betray Jesus, not once, but three times. Let him go banging on and making a fool of himself routinely. And he gets to be the bedrock of the church. John, with his brother James, sons of thunder, so offended at the rudeness of a little village one time, wanted Jesus to fire from heaven and kill them all. And he's the disciple of love. And gets the most quoted Bible verse in all the world. For God so loved the world. Paul gets to the party late. He had never even met Jesus. And he writes 13 books in the New Testament. Thomas asked for just a little empirical proof. Just a little more explanation and he has labeled the doubting Thomas for the rest of human history. I don't think it's fair. <laughs> when Thomas reunites with his pals sometime after Easter, he must have thought them to be the ones that were the ten village idiots. We have seen the Lord, they said. His response, you're crazy. You're insane. Unless I see the nail marks, the wounds for myself. Unless I put my hands in his side, Jesus was pierced by a Roman spear while he hung on the cross to confirm that he was dead. Unless I can put my hands on him, unless I can see him, I will not believe. And this is what has forever marked Thomas as the doubter. But was he? I don't think so. We all may have reacted the same way. I think we are dealing with a man whose experience was much different than the rest of his peers. Why did the ten disciples believe? Because Christ appeared to them, not because of the empty tomb. You will not find anywhere in the gospel accounts anyone believing that Jesus was risen just because the tomb was empty. Nowhere. The first believers in the gospel accounts all had an encounter with the risen Christ. That is why they believed. And coming into that first Sunday after Easter, Thomas had no such experience to draw upon. To call Thomas a doubter simply isn't fair. 
All the others in the room believed because they had seen Jesus. Then we act as if Thomas is somehow deficient because he balks at this idea. When he had not had the same experience they had had. He wasn't being dumb. He was being rational. There's a lesson for us in this. When other people do not believe what we believe and how we believe it, that does not necessarily, automatically, or even remotely make them suspect, deficient, ignorant, stubborn, hard-hearted, or heretics. Well, why can't they see it? It's as plain as the nose on their face. They can't see it because they've never been told to look for it. They haven't the same experience you have. Maybe they haven't encountered Christ or God or the Holy as we have. That makes us neither superior nor better. It simply means that our experiences are different than other people. And those with a different experience than ours may have to come to faith a different way than we have come to faith altogether. There was a frog that lived his entire life in a well. There he is. That was his home. It was simple, quiet, cozy, safe. Then one day, from somewhere, a second frog found his way into the well. And frog number one says, where did you come from? Yes, the visiting frog. Oh, I came from a great lake far beyond these concrete walls, he said. And the frog in the well said, really? Well, what's that lake like? Is it as nice as my well? Is it as big as my home? And the other frog laughed and he said, there's no comparison at all. And then he began to describe to the frog in the well this great massive body of water, acres and acres of playground, swimming fish, butterflies. The sun hangs in the sky 10, 12 hours a day, not just for a few minutes overhead. The sky reaches out for as far as you can see. It's a much bigger world beyond these little concrete walls. Well, the frog in the well tried to listen the best that he could, but he finally said to himself, of all the liars I have never ever known in my lifetime, this one is the worst. And the most shameful, who would ever believe that such a place that he is describing can exist? But don't judge the frog in the well too harshly. He can only speak about what he knows. His world has been one limited, small, one set of experiences. And if you fell into his world after living in a different place, a miraculous place by comparison, how could words ever describe to him the world you came from? How do you describe mystery to someone who has only known concrete walls? How do you describe to someone a sunset, the Milky Way, or a butterfly if they've never seen those things? How do you describe the unknowable God to someone who doesn't know they are longing for God? How do you tell someone who has only seen corpses that a dead man can come back to life? So let's give everyone in this story a pass. The crazy ten who are now actually sane, 
They can only tell Thomas what they know, and Thomas, the only rational one left in the room, can only respond with what he knows. You follow me? Say amen. And as an aside, I'll open up a parenthesis here. This might be the answer to some of our division as a society. Everyone, every single person, speaks, acts, believes, and engages with others from their own experiences, their own conditioning, their own boundaries of what they have and have not known. Granting grace to see why people believe and do what they do would help us all find a little more common ground. Some live in a well. Some live in a lake. Some live in a river. Some at sea. But we all share the same ecosystem, as it were. And we would do well to remember that lest we poison the water for all of us. Close parenthesis. Back to Thomas. On that first Sunday after Easter, let's deal gently with him, with all the doubting Thomases around us. Let's not try to vanquish their doubts by shoving all of our evidence down their throats. Our philosophical arguments, our systematic defenses, and too often our condescending claims to see what we see. We can only testify to our own experiences to say, we have seen the Lord. And then to invite those without such an experience to come and see or to go and see it for themselves. We can only encourage, lovingly encourage others to seek. People do not convince other people to believe in God or to follow Jesus. I'll say that again. People do not convince other people to believe in God or to follow Jesus. Preachers, evangelists, churches, they can't give someone faith. To quote the great Billy Graham, God judges, the Holy Spirit convicts. My job is to love. Now that's about as good as praying the serenity prayer every day. That if we got up every day and we said, God will judge, the Spirit will convict, My job is to love. So many of the frustration and anger and stuff that goes in our lives would just disappear into the ether. It's not my job to straighten anybody else out. It's not my job to tell somebody else what they ought to be doing. My job is to love and leave it in the hands of one who is merciful and just. And when we do that, Christ might just come to those people. I mean, really, if we say we have faith, then let's have a little faith that God can speak to skeptics, to questioners, deconstructionists, doubters. It's the first Sunday after Easter. Jesus shows up again. Who does he go to first? Thomas. He finds him in the room not to rub his nose in his doubts, but essentially to say, you, you called? You, you needed to see me? Did, here are my hands. Here's my side. Look, touch, believe. It's the, one of the more amazing stories in the Gospels. Thomas's doubt 
is the reason Jesus showed up. Do you see it? Thomas's doubt brings the risen Christ back into the room. And so Thomas teaches us in this moment that doubt sometimes is okay. Doubt and wonder and questions and inquiry, rather than leading us away from faith, can actually lead us to faith. Because when we ask questions and we search and we seek, we are seeking the truth. And no one should ever be afraid of seeking the truth. The world opens up. Thomas proclaims, My Lord and my God. First, Last, only person in the entire Gospels to make that claim. Christ, Messiah, even Lord. People say that all the time in the Gospels. No one had ever looked at Jesus and said, My Lord and my God. And Thomas, in his doubts, gets a hold of something that no one up to that point had ever seen before and makes such a statement that that statement right there continues to bear implications in the church 2,000 years later. My Lord and my God. I would be remiss if I didn't go back to the beginning. Did, did the uh, bulletins ever arrive? Oh, awesome. Because no one, I was wondering, I wonder why no one's asking me about the title of my sermon because it's really clever today. <laughs> Ants in the pants of faith. It's a quote from Frederick Beekner. I absolutely love Beekner. He brings, he brings me life because doubt has been about as important a part of his journey as faith, and he and I have that in common. And he sees the two as inseparable. And if you're not prone to doubts or if you are at a stage of your journey where you've got everything settled out and sorted out really well, just skip Beekner for now. <laughs> but remember him. You might need him later. That particular phrase comes from his book, Wishful Thinking, one of nearly 40 books he has written in his 93 years. I'll leave you with his words today. Faith is better understood as a verb than a noun. As a process, not a possession. It is on again, off again. Not once and for all. Faith is not being sure where you're going, but going anyway. A journey without maps. So whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you are either kidding yourself or you are fast asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Besides, almost nothing that makes any real difference can be proved. I can prove the law of gravity by dropping a shoe out the window. I can prove that the world is round if I'm clever at that sort of thing, that the radio works, that light travels faster than sound. But I cannot prove that life is better than death or love better than hate. I cannot prove the greatness of the great or the beauty of the beautiful. I cannot prove my own free will. I cannot prove that my friend is my friend. So let doubt and darkness have their say alongside faith and hope. For if there is no room for doubt, then God 
has no room for me.